0: Quick note that the following episode of Canada Land may contain subject matter and language that some people will find offensive.
1: When we turn on the tap, we just expect it to be there. It's hard to even imagine what we'd do if it wasn't. The fact that Canada is home to 20% of the world's fresh water supply is often batted around. But that fact obscures the scarcity of the resource in practice, even here in Canada. Because as it turns out, the majority of Canadians don't live where most of the water is. And climate change is altering how and when that water flows, especially in the most arid part of this country, the prairies. Last summer, it got to the point where some cities were looking at the possibility of having to truck in water to meet the daily needs of their residents.
2: We would have been in a position if the drought had continued where we would have had to have trucked water or who knows what well, we do know what we would have done. We had contingencies, so, uh, but it would have been unbelievably expensive.
1: As prairie cities continue to grow and water becomes even more unpredictable in both extremes, when year drought, the next year flood, how cities engage with their water resources is changing. And the shortcomings of our water systems are shining a light on how many communities across the country are growing in unsustainable ways. And that isn't just impacting water supply, but also the um, the other end of the municipal water business. That's right, folks. We're going to be talking quite a lot about poop today. We will be starting by looking at the most basic services we expect to work for us every single day. And from there, we can better understand how irresponsible growth of cities is destroying natural environments. We can also look at why billions of dollars are now necessary to manipulate the waterways in Alberta, Saskatchewan, and Manitoba to prepare for a changing climate. I'm Sarah Larniuk, and I'm the senior producer of Canada Land's Monday show. And this week, I'm sitting in for Jesse Brown. Wait for it. there's something super satisfying about smashing a layer of pristine ice in spring. Isn't there? Maybe I'm just weird, but I think that sound is just so gratifying. It's like the sound of freedom from a long, cold winter. This ice I'm smashing is on the shore of Lake Minnewasta in Morin, Manitoba. It's an hour and a half drive southwest of Winnipeg and about 25 kilometers from the North Dakota border. Since I moved back to Winnipeg a few years ago, this city has captured my attention because of this lake. Well, sort of. Lake Minnewasta is a pretty grand name for this place. It's actually a relatively small human-made reservoir. But it serves as the main potable water source for this city that just can't stop growing. No, really. Morden started off as like 1,800 people in the 50s. By 2006, it had more than tripled its population to 6,500 people. And in the last census, its growth continued and it is now a population of about 10,000.
2: Two weeks ago, the, the lake was out about 100 feet further from the shoreline. was. was
1: I met Morden's mayor, Brandon Burley, on the shore of Lake about feet. Uh
2: The water level is down 14 and a half feet uh, from today. So today, obviously, it's a different situation where the water is flowing over the dam and, um, and the ice is now backing up the water a bit.
1: Basically, we're standing on a beach with no real beach to speak of. The lake has recently filled, and the water's come up the sand all the way to the boardwalk. And that's a huge contrast from what I saw when I visited last summer. When I met Mayor Burley here last July, huge swaths of the southern prairies were in the midst of an extreme drought. And so the beach was enormous. Enough space for hundreds of people, multiple beach volleyball courts, and it was all great for entertaining the family, but it meant that the city's potable water supply was virtually gone.
2: So it was it was an unbelievable predicament to be in.
1: And until the snow started melting these past few weeks, this reservoir remained empty. Worrying everyone that despite the huge amount of snow that fell here in Manitoba this winter, this reservoir just wouldn't refill.
2: And so we would have been in a position, if the drought had continued, where we would have had to have trucked water or pumped from the Pemina or who knows what. Well, we do know what we would have done. We had contingencies, but they would have been unbelievably expensive and I don't know how we would have funded them. We would have probably been in that position by maybe June of this year had this lake not filled.
1: But the past two to three weeks have brought Mother Nature's fury down on this region. Sending communities from worrying about drought to worrying about flooding in just a matter of days. One week, a heavy snowstorm, followed the next week with days of torrential rains. And flooding not only brings the typical problems for houses, roads, businesses, it also wreaks havoc on the other side of the municipal water services. And here's something you probably didn't know. But the smaller towns and cities across the country rarely have wastewater treatment plants at all. And Morden is no exception. What they've got instead are called lagoons. Basically just these big in-ground pools where all of the community's sewage collects. And the sewage sits in these pools and the solids settle out of the water. Then the water is released into the nearby streams and rivers during the summer.
3: So drinking water problem will get worse with the, the drought and wastewater problem will get worse with excessive rain. So, so this year we will be good on the waterfront, but uh, we'll have tough time on the wastewaterfront.
1: That's Santok Rendawa. He's the deputy city manager in Morden, and he's an engineer by trade. See, the problem is that when there's too much precipitation, these lagoons, well, they just overflow directly into the waterways that are nearby. None of that settling process occurs, and it's just raw sewage. Overflowing. It's been a problem that the city's been aware of for years, and plans for a wastewater treatment plant to service Morden and the two neighboring communities have been in the works for a decade, but it's still not built. Meanwhile, Morden and the surrounding cities just keep growing, exaggerating the problem. And this is a familiar story in the prairies because so many of the fastest growing communities are these small cities far outpacing the growth rate of big cities like Winnipeg, Calgary or Regina. But there was a lack of planning for these big infrastructure projects like wastewater treatment plants, and the cost burden is substantial.
3: Uh, It's not difficult to get the buy-in from your local council or the local government because they know the issues. But all these infrastructure projects, they are big ticket items and we need federal and provincial funding on those things. So municipalities are not uh, equipped that much uh, on the financial side to handle these projects without the support from federal or provincial government.
1: This situation has Morton in a real pickle, but it's not especially unique. Similar stories can be heard all across the prairies. And so the reason I'm telling you about Morden, Manitoba is because it offers a great example of what it looks like when the extreme hydrological system of the prairies meets city planning and what it looks like when climate change exacerbates those extremes. It also shows us what happens when municipalities put economic development before sustainable, climate-informed planning. We know other cities and towns are dealing with the same issues in part because of research done by scientists who are looking at the wider impacts of those practices on the larger water systems.
0: Hi, my name is Bill Buhay. I'm a professor in the Department of Geography at the University of Winnipeg.
1: He's been looking at Dead Horse Creek, the one that fills Lake Minawasta, and the Red River in southern Manitoba since 2009.
0: Taking uh, samples for uh, the chemistry of the water, uh, the pollutants, uh, the pharmaceuticals, and just sort of monitoring it that way.
1: He was looking for things like nitrogen and phosphorus originally.
0: Uh, well, phosphorus is also a uh, part of, uh, you know, things that, products that human beings use like detergents and, and soaps and things like that. And uh, we also use phosphorus as a fertilizer on agricultural lands. And then there's subsequently a lot of runoff during the spring.
1: And the rivers react to these artificially high levels of those nutrients.
0: So what we're seeing is uh, particularly blue-green algae responds to it, overblooms, uh, creates these masses that eventually, um, well, they have, a, they have a lot of effects.
1: Blue-green algae isn't the only effect, though. Particularly in the summer, when all of the small communities are releasing their sewage lagoon water, known as effluent, it regularly devastates the waterways.
0: And what happened was that... As the effluent was being released, you could see the oxygen levels coming down, and it was from fairly well oxygenated, between eight and ten milligrams per liter. That's good. That you know, that's that's good for aquatic life. And then it dropped down to about six or seven, and then it was down around two, or just hovering around above two, and you know, just just holding on. You know, like an aquatic life could, you know, they'd be stressed, but they could live, right? And then all of a sudden, boom. It dropped below two, and we just happened to be going out to sample that day, and when we got there, the whole top of the river was full of dead fish. They all died because of the oxygen levels, right?
1: And this would have been in like July or something when they were letting the effluent and you
0: know why that was? Because we were monitoring both the weather and the water, all it took was for a cloudy day, and that killed the fish, and you know why? Because, yes, you're loading this with uh, contaminants they're utilizing the oxygen they're dropping the oxygen levels they're putting stress on the river in turning you know that's hypoxic almost going into anoxia but there's still macrophytes in the water that are photosynthesizing mm-hmm. so they're making up the slack right okay. so on a sunny day you'd see uh, the oxygen levels go up a bit even though the effluent was going in right and on a cloudy day it would come back down because the macrophytes aren't photosynthesizing right All it took really was a really cloudy day for a couple days. And the macrophytes weren't making up that excess oxygen, and it killed everything. That's how vulnerable that situation is,
1: right? This isn't just a small-town issue. A lot of the big cities aren't faring any better. In Winnipeg, wastewater has become a key community concern, too. Because the wastewater treatment plants here don't treat for the nutrients that Bill was talking about, like phosphorus and nitrogen. But even worse than that is what happens when there's a storm or high water flow in the spring from the snow melting. You know, like right now. Because the treatment plants can't keep up. And what happens then? Well, the Winnipeg Free Press made an automated Twitter account for times like these. It's called the WFP Poop Bot here are a few gems from the last month. On April 23rd, it tweeted,
4: In the last 24 hours, raw sewage probably flowed into hashtag Winnipeg's rivers for 15 hours 18 minutes. Ew, poop emoji. And on the 25th? On April 25th, 2022, 59.6 megaliters of sewage was released. Gross.
1: That's right. In just a three-day period during the last storm in Winnipeg, 60 million liters of just raw sewage was released directly into the Red River. And that river then flows into Lake Winnipeg. Anyone want to go to the beach this summer? No? Didn't think so. Much like in the case of Morden, new infrastructure is in the works. But the price tag for retrofitting even one of Winnipeg's plants is pegged at $1.8 billion. So this is another example of the predicament many cities already find themselves in. Some worried about water supply, even more worried about wastewater, all seemingly cash strapped and unable to afford the necessary improvements. Cool. Then enters climate change, here to throw another wrench in the works.
5: You are speaking with Frank Frigo. I am the acting manager of a group within the city of Calgary's uh, water resources business unit that is called Watershed Planning.
1: So, yeah, Frank Frigo is the city of Calgary's go-to guy on water. And Calgary is a city that understands the wild swings of the prairie water system. 2013 flood anyone? That caused a cool $5 billion in estimated damages and more frequent and intense storms are one of the most well-understood impacts of a warming climate. But Calgary also has to be aware of the impacts a changing climate is having on the mountains right next door.
5: You know, with the very steep mountain catchment we have upstream, a single event can take us from drought to flood. And we're one of the unique jurisdictions where we can have drought and flood in the same water year. Um, so we're, you know, we're, we're quite aware that we're working with a very dynamic system where a vehicle is probably more a Ferrari than a, than a smart
1: car. The volatile Bow River snakes through downtown Calgary and is a part of the Saskatchewan River Basin that flows and supplies water to most of the southern prairies. So when climate change impacts this river, the ripple effects span three provinces.
5: What we have seen is because of the Uh, predominance of alpine terrain upstream of us, that generally means that we're getting snow in the alpine all the way into the June period, and then that alpine snow really doesn't start melting off till June and July, and that has generally meant that water is quite ample in the June, July, and into the early August period in most years.
1: Okay, so winter snow actually acts as a natural storage mechanism. And then it melts slowly, and that actually gives you water the rest of the summer. And climate models forecast that more precipitation is likely to fall in the mountains in the winter. But that could create problems for two reasons. For one, it's becoming more likely that that precipitation might fall as rain instead of snow. And that doesn't store as well. And the other problem is that the spring snowmelt is coming earlier and earlier, which means the greatest water flows might not actually be there when people need it the most people who live in Calgary, but also farmers.
5: Unfortunately, in our case, we haven't seen a lot of evidence that these shifts mean an increase in drought risk and a decrease in flood. It's more like an increase at both ends of the spectrum. Uh, So an increase in the potential for large events due to the possibility of extreme events becoming more frequent on the flood side, um, but at the same time seeing a different seasonal dynamic that could lead to more late-season stress on the water resources, which really puts us in a place to think very carefully about utilizing existing management techniques, uh, storage reservoirs, uh, hydropower facilities.
1: Dave Sautchen is the director of the Prairie Adaptation Research Collective, or PARC, at the University of Regina. He was also the lead author on a federal report for Natural Resources Canada that compiled research done across the region and that shows the impacts climate change is and will continue to have on the prairies. And he says climate change's impacts on the water system here is not an issue. It is the issue.
4: Well, the impacts of climate change on water in the prairie provinces is a big topic. It's probably the major impact of climate change is seen in the distribution of water from place to place, but also between seasons and years. A large part of the prairies is Canada's driest region where in an average year we lose more water by evaporation and water loss from plants than than we gain. And that's why over a large part of the prairies, trees are not native to the ecosystem because there is a negative water balance. So given our dry climate, It kind of makes sense that the major impact of climate change in our region should be on the distribution of water. And we say that the climate change is amplifying the hydrological cycle.
1: But as was seen in the case of Morden and Winnipeg, climate change can't be blamed alone for the strain and stresses we're seeing to the water systems.
4: The threat or the risk imposed by climate change is only in part the result of the changing climate the other part of the equation a large part of the equation is our vulnerability to these changes we are exposing ourselves to climate risks because of the way that we make a living and the way that we plan our cities and the way that we use land and you know a good example is living and building in floodplains
1: In that report for Natural Resources Canada, I found this really interesting passage that also talks about how where we live changes our ability to adapt to extreme weather. Specifically, it talks about people moving from rural areas to cities. And it says this, quote, A culture of innovation has helped prairie farmers adapt to drought over the past century. Strong social capital exists in many rural communities across the prairies, including cultural norms of mutual assistance during crises. Rural residents may be more equipped to cope with extreme events than urban residents. There was an amazing example of this just this past week in southern Manitoba when a culvert buckled because of the onslaught of rain. So the water started building up against the dike and the nearby city of Winkler was about to start evacuating people from their homes and declare a state of emergency. But then about a dozen local farmers came with their tractors and their pumps and their irrigation equipment and they started pumping water into a nearby field to save the city.
4: You know, the entire um, social dimension of climate change is fascinating and it's not my field of study. I'm a climate scientist, but I collaborate with social scientists, including some of the authors in our Prairie Provinces chapter. And they do research that indicates that the rural prairies have really become much more vulnerable to the impacts of, of climate change and other sources of, of change and stress, not just climate change, because they've lost the what we call the social cohesion. So as the population declines and as there are fewer services in these communities and fewer reasons for the farming community to visit the the local service center, as these communities decline in population and the services, there's just less opportunity for people to gather. There was an interesting study done by one of our students that indicated that the loss of the ball diamond or the hockey arena had a huge impact on the community because that's where people gathered. And they were coming to watch a ball game or a hockey game, but this is where they had their social interaction. So, yes, there are very, very social reasons as to why we have this heightened vulnerability to climate change as a result of changes in our economy and our population.
1: It's just another piece of this incredibly complicated issue of how urban life intersects with a changing water system. But overall, the big picture emerging as we put these pieces of the puzzle together is still a bit of a mystery. And that's because a few critical pieces are missing still. One being that it is difficult to understand, even with hydrological and climate models, just how bad things could get for Alberta versus Saskatchewan, for Manitoba. Certainly this last drought was devastating. Ranchers selling off starving cattle. Mayors pleading with the gods to send them rain. That all seemed really bad. In the Dust Bowl 30s, we know it was worse. And to adapt to that period, many people actually packed up and left the region because things just got so rough. But that was before the climate warmed. And it seems like things can always get worse.
4: The worst case scenario for the Prairie Provinces will be when a prolonged drought, a drought lasting years, uh, reoccurs in a warmer climate. And... We haven't had such a drought for quite a while. We had, you know, back-to-back years of drought in 2001, 2002. Um, there was a fair bit of drought in the 1980s. Of course, there was a drought of the 1930s, and I guess the 30s would be considered the worst-case scenario because mm-hmm. at Park, we have a tree-ring lab where we've collected thousands and thousands of samples of old wood And we've been able to determine how much water was available to these trees every year for more than 1,500 years. Because we have wood that goes back to the year 542. And they show that there are droughts that last many, many years. They just haven't occurred since the prairies were settled by Europeans. But they will reoccur. But when they reoccur, they will occur in a climate that's much warmer than in the past. So we expect these prolonged, these sustained droughts, these multi-year droughts to have devastating consequences for the prairies.
1: Floods, drought, raw sewage. Have I filled you with enough dread yet? Can we flip the switch from doom to hope? Because while this all really seems kind of crazy and dark, it's not like no one has started to try to make things better come up with answers to the complicated beehive of questions. Calgary is a good example here, too, having invested intensively in wastewater treatment capacity as well as water efficiency programs in the last two decades. Here's Frank Frigo at the City of Calgary again.
5: I'm happy to report that since 2005, um, you know, net withdrawals by the city have decreased, though we've seen you know pretty staggering growth uh, in that same period. And it mostly is because our... Residents or consumers do understand that water in our basin is scarce.
1: Morden is also looking at efficiency programs to reduce per capita water use, as well as rainwater harvesting programs. And they will be building infrastructure to connect the city to other water resources, so they don't end up in the same situation again. But then, there are also small communities that are going above and beyond and I can't really pretend to be unbiased with this particular example. Hello. Pick the most miserable day possible. To oh, graduate. right? <laughs> what is going on? The highway, the highway was <laughs> nice. The last town I'll take you to today is Selkirk, Manitoba. And while I did previously report on Selkirk's advanced environmental and climate policies while I worked at the Winnipeg Free Press... I also took a brief hiatus from journalism last year, and for six months, I worked at the city of Selkirk. But that's how I learned about how advanced municipal answers to these huge problems can really be. And it's where I met Raven. I'm Raven Sharma. I'm the manager of utilities for the city of Selkirk. She took me on one of my favorite tours, but one that leaves you smelling just a bit uh, off for the rest of the day. She showed me the city's brand-spanking-new wastewater treatment plant. The plant is advanced enough that all those nutrients we talked about earlier being a problem in the Red River. Well, this plant uses a membrane bioreactor, and what that means is that it allows the treatment plant to filter out all of those nutrients, nitrogen, phosphorus. All right, I'll take you through. careful.
6: Yeah, I had no idea what we were doing, so... This is loud.
1: Sorry, it gets kind of loud, but the process starts the moment the water flows into the plant. Grates and filters take out any solids. This area is called the headworks. The new headworks compared to what we had before, we just had a bar screen,
6: 6 millimeter. So if you picture that, a credit card could get through it. I've seen capsules, I've, you know, I don't need to describe what I've seen, but the headworks that we have now, because Selkirk thought about the future, thought about potential for pharmacology, all of that would be filtered out in the headworks prior to it hitting the bioreactor because we have gone down to sub 30 microns, which is, you can't even see it. We're able to get rid of everything, which is pretty amazing because that also will increase our life expectancy of our bioreactors and our membranes.
1: Right. Okay. Not to put you into graphic detail, but like, so in an old plant, it would have been like Everyone knows what's in there, like condoms, plastic containers, whatever. That, that all. Cats. Yeah. yeah. Yes, you heard that right. She said cats. They've been known to come in through the storm drains.
7: Leaves.
6: Cool. Uh,
1: Selkirk loves their
6: corn. I always know when it's corn season. <laughs>
7: Jesus.
1: All right, that might be in the graphic detail aspect. <laughs> um, but
6: all of that would have been passable before like it would have gone it would have been passable and all of these things so if you think of nitrogen and and ammonia and phosphorus nutrients fertilizer um, all of that would have impacted the biology and then yields and infects our rivers and our lakes it's great that we know for sure that we're not putting that into the watersheds
1: yeah that's like not a small improvement that's like yeah (laughs) it's
6: astronomical and so The effluent that we had in our old plant had a lot of suspended solids, we call it. So you can actually see bugs, you can see calcium and uh, different types of molecules in it. The effluent that we have, the product after this plant is drinkable. We can't classify it that yet, but it meets all the standards for potable water. It is clear. There's no suspended solids in it. There's no fecal coliform. There's no phosphorus or nitrogen. We're at trace, so we have to meet one milligram per liter, and we're at 0.3, which is trace. Our suspended solids are at two, so it's, it's very clear
8: water leaving this plant is uh, cleaner than the water running by in the Red River. There's less phosphorus, nitrogen, yes. suspended solids, all of it. It's, yeah. it's, it's like running, drinking water straight to the river. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah.
1: Okay, don't hold your breath. I did not drink it. I'm not that committed. Though, I'm sure it's great water. This is all part of the preparation for the future. Maybe one day our water can be fully recycled in our own communities, moving from the wastewater treatment plant to the water treatment plant back to our houses, and then back out again. It's certainly a possibility within reach. We are known as the
6: leaders. We are known as having the most advanced technology. They're using our plants as examples in the literature. They're using our plants to teach others. Um, yeah, it's uh, it's pretty amazing to be a part of. Is that Manitoba-wide, Canada-wide? Like, what are we talking about when we say leaders? Uh, I would say Canada-wide, North America, so the membranes that we have are in California and Singapore and so no one else has membranes like this in Canada. Also just the the laboratory that we have, the internal testing that we do, this is not required by the province but we do it anyways, just so that we can catch things if the biology of something has upset the chemistry, we're able to tackle it
1: right away. And Selkirk's chief administrative officer, Dwayne Nichols, says the wastewater plant is a part of the city's bigger goal of limiting waste of all kinds to limit the community's impact on the environment.
8: Well, I think uh, as it, with every portion of human life, we need to start thinking about the circular economy and how do we stop creating waste. So with our wastewater treatment plant, if we can redirect all of that uh, reclaimed water uh, to to in- at this point, industrial purposes and in time as people become more comfortable as the technology improves uh, and turn it into to potable water so that we have that opportunity to defend against any sort of worry of running out of water.
1: The city has also paired the investment in a new wastewater treatment plant with other projects like splitting the city's storm and sewage systems to help prevent flooding and overwhelming the wastewater treatment plant during a storm. They're also incorporating more natural infrastructure to hold more water in the soil locally, you know, like Trees and stuff. But the trouble is that all of this costs money, a lot of money, and every city is feeling the pinch of not being able to afford these kinds of infrastructure projects. If we go back to the first community we talked about, Morden, they're looking at water costs going up by 23% this year as the community tries to cover the bill. And if water is the climate problem in the prairies, it's clear cities need help to rise to the adaptation challenge.
8: I think there's there's some systematic problems we have in local governments. Uh, I say local government, that's a misnomer. You know, we're, we're not a form of government, we're not a level of government. We call ourselves that. Uh, we're not in the Constitution. We are a municipal corporation. Um, we don't have the same powers of taxation, just property tax, and then user fees. And so we have user fees on our water and wastewater services um, but the true cost of those are, are artificially subsidized by grants. And so we've got a system in place where we starve municipal corporations that have the cost of delivering these services, have the greatest level of risk. You know, if, you, if the, your municipal cor- uh, corporation is not working, uh, you know um, immediately in the morning because the water's not coming out and the toilet's not flushing. So we're on the front lines of this, these issues we have a tax system that does not give us the tools to be able to respond to so we have to go cap in hand to the, the you know provincial and federal governments we waited years literally for a program that could help us fund this work now all the credit in the world to the federal and provincial government who saw the value of this and supported it but the fact that we're not actively using asset management and doing long-term planning so that we can properly fund these things you know it doesn't have to be a massive project. It doesn't have to be left to last minute grant uh, writing. You look at the the challenging situation that the city of Winnipeg finds itself in. I mean, that was a train wreck happening in slow motion. We could see this, you know, years and years and years in advance, yet we're here. Ridiculous. There's no excuse for that. That's that's just a, a a lack of responsibility on everyone's part, but it's a systematic issue. So there's no one person to blame, there's no one government to blame, it's the system that we have to change. Municipal governments, and I'll say that again now, they have to be given the tools so we can do long-term planning, build this into our asset management plan. Our plan, we're already planning for the replacement of this building. We have to be, we have to be putting money away, we have to be planning for its eventual uh, replacement because we shouldn't have to wait and then have a crisis to then get emergency funding you shouldn't run on our water as a municipality that just it can't be a thing so we need to do better this
7: better? better you know the
6: smell never gets better no
1: <laughs> in the grand scheme of things local wastewater treatment plants are actually on the small end of what's planned for water adaptation in the prairies in each of the prairie provinces massive water manipulation projects are being considered or are already in the works, to help alter the natural landscape entirely to meet the needs of communities.
7: So in particular, Calgary 2013 flood basically awakened many people.
1: Saman Razavi is an associate professor of hydrology and water resources engineering at the Global Institute for Water Security at the University of Saskatchewan. And he explains that Alberta has relied on reservoirs to try and control water supply flowing through the mountains for decades. They're already dotted across the landscape. But the 2013 flood meant that Calgary's leaders were adamant that more infrastructure was needed to protect the city in the future.
7: So such water infrastructure regulates river flows for us. It attenuates those variability. It dampens those large variabilities from season to season or from year to year.
1: One project has been greenlit so far. The Springbank Dam and Reservoir. The province and the feds are sinking half a billion dollars into a reservoir to protect Calgary from flooding. But it's not like it wasn't controversial. Tsutsena Nation was a staunch opponent of the Springbank Dam's construction for years. But then the government of Alberta offered the First Nation a $32 million grant for mitigation of the impacts resulting from the dam in exchange for their withdrawal of their objection. Three other Project options are also undergoing feasibility studies in Alberta. Many of these would not only protect from flooding, but during a drought, reservoirs could act as a backup water resource, like an emergency bucket of sorts, if the worst happened. Meanwhile, in Saskatchewan, a $4 billion project is being proposed to create an irrigation network to address water shortages for farmers.
7: So dry land agriculture is very susceptible to climate change now because we see more variability now from year to year. So it doesn't allow you to plan long-term really. But when you have irrigation system, then uh, I mean, the larger the infrastructure, the more reliability you get. So you can plan uh, better cultivation, crop type, whatever.
1: And then in Manitoba, to try and create further flood protection, the province has proposed digging channels to connect water flows from Lake Manitoba to Lake Winnipeg. And the environmental consequences of this project have also drummed up substantial opposition, principally from the First Nations whose territory will be most impacted if the project goes ahead. (sighs) Looking at the intersection of water. Climate change and cities on the prairies is an enormous amount of information. There are so many different impacts to consider all levels of government and indigenous interests, farmers, cities, water coalitions, industry.
7: And each of these uh, provinces have their own regulation system and rules to manage this water. And it's very important to realize this.
1: Right. One more piece of the puzzle. Different regulations and management systems in each and every province. For example, Alberta still employs a colonial water licensing system.
7: So when the first settlers arrive, they gradually adapt a strategy called first in time, first in right.
1: Alberta's licensing system basically means whoever got a license first, mostly farmers, can fill their entire need for water before the next person in line gets a drop. Now first off, that doesn't sound much like a sharing spirit now, does it? But also the last groups the government added to the licensing system were First Nations. So theoretically, in a drought, legally, they wouldn't be entitled to any water. The powers that be argued that that's not how it would practically play out. But needless to say, lawsuits are being fought over this in the courts as we speak. The other side effect of licensing water in this way is that because the province has already handed out too many licenses, they've stopped issuing new ones. And as water becomes scarcer in dry years, demand for these licenses has really heated up, putting a growing monetary value on access to Alberta's water. Which, call me delusional, doesn't seem like it's going to fix the problem. Climate researchers have actually predicted that declining water resources in the region will lead to conflict between industry, agriculture, and household users. To hopefully sort out all of this, the federal government is in the process of creating the Canada Water Agency, slated to tentatively open later this year. While we don't have the details of what the agency will look like, it is likely that it will play a role in helping to coordinate all of the parties who are currently at this very big water management table.
7: Across Canada, we felt like we were quite behind, for example, nations like like the US in that sense. And I think Canada Water Agency could be quite helpful in promoting that cohesion and building some universal culture uh, protocols for managing water both too much and too little water conditions.
1: I want to come back to Morden, where we started. Rain has continued to fall there since I visited and Mordenites have traded last year's water restrictions in for sandbags and evacuation orders this spring. On Saturday, the city declared a state of emergency. Morden's mayor, Brandon Burley, said, based on the forecasts he's seen, things will likely still get worse there before they get better. It's not that prairie people don't know how to live with extremes. It's always been this way. But climate change is going to make it that much tougher on everyone. Here's Dave Sauchin at the University of Regina again.
4: Yeah, it's incredible what's going on in southern Manitoba right now, where we've gone from extreme drought conditions of last summer to the, the flooding that's begun to occur as a result of a heavy snowpack in, uh, in winter and spring. And that, what we call it whiplash, this extreme transition from dry to wet conditions and back over relatively short periods of time. This whiplash is, is the kind of conditions that we expect in a warmer climate. Now, I'm not saying that the drought of last summer and the flooding of this spring is caused by climate change. These are perfectly natural conditions. But there's pretty good science to suggest that the severity of the drought and the severity of the flooding is to some extent increased as a result of a warmer climate. These natural cycles are occurring in a warmer climate. So it's the kind of dramatic shift between wet and dry that we expect more often in a, uh, in a warmer climate.
1: I guess that's the takeaway at the end of all of this. Get used to weather whiplash. This is already happening, and it will happen more. But the other takeaway is that we can't afford to take our water resources for granted. What local and provincial governments are doing right now matters. And will ultimately decide how resilient we are as a country. That's your Canada Land. You can email Jesse about this show or any other content Canada Land produces. He's at jesse at canadaland.com. He reads them all. He really does. You can also email me. I'm at sarah at canadaland.com. You can find us on Twitter at Canada Land and our website is canadaland.com. This episode was produced with the help of Sharice Sucharan. Tristan Capicione is our audio editor and technical producer. I'm Sarah Larniuk, the senior producer. Kieran Outshorn is our managing editor. Music is by So Called. Syndication is handled by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at CFUV.ca.
0: Hi there. You just heard Canada Land, the show where I'm typically joined by a different guest each week for a long feature interview. What you're going to hear next is Canada Land Shortcuts, a topical news show where I'm joined by a different co-host each week and we talk about the media's coverage of various stories in the news right now. Wait for it.
9: Sarah Haggy freelance writer, journalist, co-host of the Scamfluencers podcast, and Vanity Fair verified media Twitter heavyweight. Thank you for coming to Shortcuts. Oh
10: my God, thank you for having me. I'm so excited.
9: Yeah, and I guess I should introduce myself because I am not Jesse Brown. What? Yes, uh, apologies, question mark. (laughs) I am not Jesse Brown. I am Jonathan Goldsby, the news editor at Candleland and co-host of the Wag the Dog podcast, who has been given the uh, responsibility of shepherding shortcuts through two weeks when Jesse is away. So that is exciting. It can go terribly wrong, but it could also be a lot of fun. It's going to be fun. Yes. Sarah, today on the show, what is the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedom And why are they giving out awards, named after the guy who wrote the book on which the movie Munich was based? Welcome back to Shortcuts, where we talk about the news. Sarah, as you know, on this program, we respectively duly note things. What would you like to duly note?
10: I just read a book that was... Really, really fantastic. It's a memoir by Canadian writer and poet Emma Healy, uh, who's also a friend of mine, and it's called Best Young Woman Job Book. It came out in March, late March. I know the memoir market can feel saturated, but it really is just like this beautiful, very honest look at what it means to make a living and try and be creative at the same time. And not really compromising, you know, she's a writer and she's had to take all these jobs to support her writing. And there have been times where she thought, you know, like, am I still a writer? Like, or I'm doing this job, I'm trying to make money. Like, how am I supposed to be creative at the same time? And the way it's written is just like, it's so highly readable. It's so smart. It's so moving. It's so funny. Like, I can't say enough good things about it. And I want everyone to read it.
9: Duly noted. Press Progress and its editor, Luke LeBrun, uh, brought to my attention this week that Tamara Leach, who was one of the organizers of the Freedom Convoy, who's currently facing various charges in relation to that, is the subject of the annual honor, uh, one of the, the main annual honor by the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms it's called the George Jonas Freedom Award it's presented at an annual dinner and the national post Rex Murphy is the keynote speaker which makes me like wonder like thought is like is he Canada's Rudy Giuliani to someone who maybe no one should have ever taken seriously in the first place but it, that just made me think of like all this stuff about the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms which is one of those organizations with a bland enough name that people probably seen it pop up in a whole bunch of contexts and never all put it together, and I feel like it's worth going over. Have you heard of this organization, Sarah?
10: I have, you know, been blessed enough to not have heard Ah. of this organization until I was preparing for this episode. I was very blissfully unaware. It's a
9: fascinating thing (laughs) that it's sort of like that the shortest description is that it's like the social conservative right wing version of the Canadian Civil Liberties Association. It is a legal advocacy center. It's a registered charity, and it tends to put its fingers into an intervene to all kinds of cases around what you know broadly term as constitutional freedoms, but tends to in practice be the social conservative side of any given issue. Just to give a just a really quick history, so it was founded in 2010 by John Carpay, C-A-R-P-A-Y. He'd been a Reform Party candidate in the 1993 federal election. He became a lawyer in 99. Worked as the Alberta director of the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, and then ran the Canadian Constitution Foundation, which is a different group, until he formed the JCCF in late 2010. It, yeah, it's gotten his hands in all kinds of different things. One of the things I found it fascinating is how it's so become so enmeshed in the media over that time. Perhaps adopting some of the strategies from the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. He's very prolific uh, writing op-eds for Canadian newspapers. I counted 92 that he's written uh, since founding the JCCF, including five in the Globe and Mail. Oh, wow. As recently as July 2020 on pandemic restrictions. Barbara Kay was a National Post columnist and then wasn't and now is again, was the director of the charity from December 2016 to August 2021. But... In particular, he's been a frequent guest on the Rebels programs for years and spoke of their 2018 Rebel Live event in Calgary, at which he made remarks comparing rainbow flags to Nazi flags.
5: So what do we do? How do we defeat today's totalitarianism? Because, right? again, you got to think about the common characteristics. It doesn't matter whether it's a hammer and sickle for communism or whether it's the swastika for Nazi Germany or whether it's a rainbow flag— The underlying thing is a hostility towards individual
9: freedoms. You know, he later sort of walked that back, but basically he was, in the context of the full speech, he spends 20 minutes basically explaining how gay rights and identity politics is a new form of totalitarianism that in many respects is akin to Nazism. And that was late 2018, and yet for still quite a bit of time afterwards, he and the organization continued to be and continue to be taken seriously by the media or at least discussed in a way that doesn't mention that and and similar sorts of things.
10: Wow. For people who are being silenced, uh, they sure are talking a lot.
9: There is so much stuff. And it's amazing that even after all of that was in the news in 2018, like less than a year later, that the next June, Christy Blatchford was honored with the organization's George Jonas Award, named after the author and longtime National Post columnist who died in 2016, and there was a gala in Toronto the Eglinton Grand that was sponsored by the National Post and by Postmedia and attended by a whole bunch of their personalities. Obviously, Barbara Kay, John Robson, Rob Roberts, who shortly after was made the editor-in-chief of the National Post, and I guess I should disclose that he was my editor. I never worked there, but I wrote for there, and he was my editor for like one year in 2010. Uh, Anthony Fury, who I actually also knew at the time. David Cronenberg seemed to be there. Um, Press Progress reported he was. Also, Brian Lilly. And another person who was there was uh, the white supremacist Paul Frum, um, who just bought a ticket, it seems, and kind of... Uh, hung out, and it's just weird to see. You know, there are like 136 photos in the album on on Facebook, and it's just so interesting to see. just like was flipping through, and you're just like, okay, you know, National Post columnist, National Post columnist, uh, you know, avowed neo-Nazi, or he doesn't like the term neo-Nazi, but like avowed white nationalist. And then they uh, they popped up in the news again last year, or they popped up a lot. But like another big thing was where basically they were challenging pandemic restrictions in. Manitoba, and one of the things that the organization was doing, this charity was doing, was that it hired private investigators to surveil various public officials to see if they were being hypocrites when it came to pandemic restrictions.
6: Manitoba's justice minister is calling for an investigation into the conduct of lawyers from the Justice Center for Constitutional Freedoms.
7: It's not clear if they got anything, but it appears Manitoba's premier was also a target of a surveillance scheme designed to undermine provincial health orders. On Monday, John
8: Carpe, the now former president for the JCCF, told the court, quote, I apologized this morning to Chief Justice Joyelle in the Manitoba Court of Queen's Bench for my decision to include him in passive observation conducted by a private investigator. At one point, court heard Monday that a private investigator even followed Justice Glenn Joyelle to his private home and had a young boy ring his doorbell.
7: John Carpe was representing a group of Manitoba churches, challenging public health orders.
8: Oh, God. Yeah. Do you remember this?
10: Yeah, I remember it vaguely. And then, again, like reading again for this episode, I was like, oh,
9: wow, this is dark. It was so wacky. That itself was wacky. But the fact that one of the people they were surveilling was the chief justice of Manitoba's Court of Queen's Bench, who was hearing one of their lawsuits against pandemic restrictions, at the same time happened to be tracked by a private eye they had hired Supposedly, just totally coincidentally, uh, as though one hand didn't know what the others were doing, and Carpe stepped back from the organization for a while and came back. But it's so wild because it's one of those things that's been definitely has been scrutinized in the press sporadically. Press Progress has done a good job. CTV Winnipeg, for example, wrote a good report last summer. Um, CBC has written about it. But in a lot of cases, it's largely treated as this neutral-ish thing, like the Canadian Taxpayers Federation, which is also very ideologically charged. But, like, you know, a uh, uh, producer, of Viva brought to my attention just this article, you know, about the award given to being given to Tamar Leach and the Toronto Sun, which, I mean, yes, the Toronto Sun, but it's, you know, one of their better actual reporters, Jane Stevenson. Mm-hmm. But it, it's just the way this, these things is described. It's always so... Fascinating to see organizations that have such long and, if nothing else, interesting histories, just be described as though it's just a thing. As you know, as though it we're just a civil libertarian organization. Quoting the the president, the founder, Miss Leech inspired Canadians to exercise their charter rights and freedoms by participating actively in the democratic process and took the initiative to help organize a peaceful protest and serve as one of its leaders. Said JCCF President John Carpe in a statement to the Toronto Sun.
10: I. Uh it that is it's so bleak to see this like totally rewritten historically of something that happened like months ago, yeah, and seeing you know and I, I'm looking at the quote here too, and it, seeing it continue, the resulting peaceful protest in Ottawa awakened many Canadians to the injustice of charter violating lockdowns and mandatory vaccine policies. Miss Leach has suffered for the cause of freedom by spending 18 days unjustly jailed and exemplifies courage, determination, and perseverance.
9: I mean, it's not even clear she's allowed back in Ontario to attend this.
10: Yeah, it is just, it's truly, it's astounding. I mean, part of it, yeah,
9: is, is the, this rewriting of history, but also just like, is it a matter of, are there's not enough people in this country to be able to actually meaningfully track and report on these things? Like, why is the institutional memory seem to be so short?
10: I mean, for them specifically, this is kind of the narrative that was being spun the whole time. So I guess it's not even a short-term memory for them. It's more like, this is just the narrative that they've
9: created. So with the to the convoy. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. So Sarah, as someone who uh, maybe doesn't doesn't typically engage in straight news reporting, but you're obviously absolutely a writer. H- how do you decide what's relevant to include in giving background on a given person or a thing?
10: I mean, for something like this, so often these kind of come to you. Like, I don't know if people who aren't writers understand using something like this as a source. You usually get it as a. PR kind of email Mm -hmm. of, you know, this group of people or this person from this organization is willing to answer questions about X, Y, Z. You know, they hire a PR team to kind of get the word out that they're willing to do, you know, uh, they have like a media kit or, you know, whatever type of thing to give adequate information. It's a very transparent process. Like you have the information in front of you, you can go on the website, you see immediately (laughs) what this is, you know? Um, And I don't even think it's like this matter of kind of being fooled into there's some sort of trick that's being played here. I just think it's kind of a matter of people not doing their due diligence in properly researching things that they're quoting or sources that they're quoting. And you kind of do see it. You see it very often if you kind of look into any organization for more than 20 seconds it's very easy to see where they stand and who what their sources are and that type of thing so i I do think it's really it's confusing to see them being used as a legitimate source in that sense
9: shortcuts for this week i'm actually going to be back hosting this again next week thank you for joining me sarah thank you so much for having me it was really fun we are on twitter at canadaland you can find me on twitter at goldsby i am also the co-host of wag the dug which is going uh weekly for the duration of the ontario election uh, so the first weekly episode will be out next Friday, and then it will be on every Friday after that through, I think, June 3rd. Where can people find you, Sarah?
10: I'm on Twitter at KindaHaggy. I co-host a podcast for Wondery called Scamfluencers. That was advertised on a billboard in Times Square, right? Yeah. And I am a writer at Gawker, so you can find me there.
9: This episode is produced by Viva Lassard with additional production by Tristan Capaccione. Our managing editor is Kieran Audzorn, and the theme music is by so called Syndication is by CFUV 101.9 FM in Victoria. Visit them online at cfuv.ca.